morning, everyone. It's good to be with the remnant here that has survived the plague that's going through us. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We'll be in the first chapter. Our text for this morning is chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Again, that was Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we had heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Thus is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word that you have given it to us, that you have revealed yourself in it. We pray now that you would prepare our hearts to hear it, that you would impress it upon us, that we would practice it, live it out, and we pray that you would give us diligent ears and minds to hear and to understand. And we pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. So as we come to the book of Colossians, before we begin this morning, by way of introduction to the book of Colossians, before we can really understand this book, we need to know something of the context of which it was written in. As we just read in the opening verses here, this was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. We are also told at, at the end of the book of Colossians that this letter was to be taken to the church in Laodicea and read amongst them. We are told that in the chapter 4, verse 16. But what of this place called Colossae? It was a city in the province of Phrygia, located in the valley of Lycus, and on today's maps we would refer to this as southwestern Asia. The city of Colossae was on a main trade route, which gave rise to a melting pot of religious thought and practice. Many Phrygians, Jews, and Greeks called Colossae home. And moreover, with all the religious ideas being brought to Colossae from various parts of the world, the city soon became the adopted home of Oriental mysticism. So as we read through the letter to the Colossian church, we should not be surprised to learn that Paul has to address these pagan doctrines and practices. We read of some of the issues the church was dealing with here in the second chapter of this book. In, in chapter 2, verse 8, we read where Paul said, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. The letter goes on to address the worship of angels, those who claim to have visions, to laws regarding foods, those who abase themselves, which is to belittle or humiliate oneself, 
the severe treatment of one's own body, and being taken up in self-made religion. The church in Colossae had failed to stand against the pagan cultural beliefs that pervaded its city. Paul wrote this letter to warn the Christians in the church at Colossae of these pagan beliefs and practices while also exalting Christ above all things. If one had described this letter to this church in one sentence, it would be the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ because that is what Paul emphasizes so strongly to this church. And one last thing, just to give a brief outline of the, the first chapter of this book so we have an idea of where this fits in at the letter. Um, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, are Paul's greetings, thanksgivings, and prayer for the Colossians. And chapter 1, verses 13 through 23, is on the absolute supremacy of Christ. And then verses 24 through verse 7 of the next chapter are on Paul's ministry and special concern for this church. So now that we have an idea of the context, the immediate context of this chapter, the context of the church in Colossae, let's now look to, our, to this letter this morning back at verse 1 as we begin to go verse by verse through this. So looking back at verse 1, which says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Now here in this first verse, we are introduced to what is called the secondary author of this letter, who is the Apostle Paul. The primary author, of course, is God the Holy Spirit. So as Paul is penning these words for the church in Colossae, he is an instrument of which God the Holy Spirit is using to instruct his church. Listen to what we are told in regard to the, the inspiration of Scripture in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. I'm sure many of us are familiar with this. Peter wrote, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Therefore, we see Paul is being moved by the Holy Spirit to write these words. And furthermore, this twofold authorship is why there are distinguishable characteristics between the writings of, say, John and of Paul, because there are stylistic differences between the secondary authors of Scripture. For example, the letter to the Ephesians has noticeable stylistic differences than from Peter's first letter. Both are letters to churches but have different secondary authors and have noticeable different styles of writing. It's not that one is the word of God and the other isn't, or even that part of what was written down was the word of God and the other just Peter's thoughts on the matter. No. Rather, the whole of these writings, all 66 books that we have, are the word of God. They are his revelation to us. As Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. That is, God breathed these words out through his chosen men. Hence, we have this twofold authorship, where God the Holy Spirit, the primary author, works through, in this instance, the apostle Paul, to give us the very words of God. Although Paul, in the way he writes this letter, does so in a characteristic way that is unique to him, they are still the very words of God because the Holy Spirit was using him as an instrument to give us scripture. And let me just add as a note here that it's not simply just the words that are inspired, but also the grammar and the punctuation that is inspired. 
So therefore, as we read this letter, we can be confident that this is not merely the writings of a godly man, but they are the very words of God and are without error or contradiction. And because this is the very word of God, it has the authority to command our lives, to constrain our consciences, to tell us what we are to believe and what we are to reject as false, and how we are to live our lives in all aspects. When the word of God tells us something, we don't have to wonder if it's true or not. When the Bible tells us that all things were created out of nothing in the space of six days and that God rested on the seventh, we don't need to wonder if we evolved from pond slime. God's word is truth. Consider what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth. And also consider the words of our Lord Jesus as recorded by John in John 17, 17, which says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And moreover, this is why we should have the utmost seriousness when we go to study the word of God, because it is exactly that, the very word of God. Let me just bring this home to all of us today by way of application. So let's apply this doctrine to ourselves. I want everyone here to ask themselves, do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? And if yes, how often do you read your Bible? How much time did you spend reading the word of God this past week and then compare that to the amount of time you spent consuming entertainment? Whether it be television, social media, watching YouTube, playing video games, anything like that. How you spend your time is a reflection of what's important to us. If I tell you all that I love my children, but then go a week without ever speaking to them and walk past them to go to the TV, you would rightly say that I'm a liar, that I do not love my children. If I love my kids, I'll spend time with them instead of staring at a screen. The same is true of God. If we love him, we will be very active in reading his word, praying, and being present when his word is rightly preached. I'm afraid that we, and mainly as a church as a whole, has become intellectually lazy. We would all rather have someone else do the hard work of studying scripture and then just letting them tell us what the text says instead of us studying scripture for ourselves. The church as a whole has become minimalistic in the sense that we want to do the least amount we have to. After all, the Bible doesn't say I have to go to church twice on Sunday or that I have to read X amount of chapters of the Bible each day. And if that is your attitude toward God's ordained means of grace for his chosen people to grow in the faith, you need to repent. Did you know that in Geneva, Switzerland, during John Calvin's time, that there was a total of 33 sermons preached every single week, starting on the weekdays at 4 a.m., and then throughout the day so that everyone, regardless of their work schedule, could hear a sermon preached each day. That's one of the main reasons that Geneva became known as a place of great godliness. Whenever there, was going to be faithful, whenever there is going to be faithful exposition of the word of God, if humanly possible, we need to be there. But don't worry, as far as I know, uh, Jim and Roger can correct me, but I don't think we're going to start having services at 4 a.m., but beloved, I say all of this, as I say all of this, I'm as much preaching this to myself as I am anyone else here. It is no light matter to neglect the word of God 
in reading it and in hearing it preached. Think of the many Christians throughout church history. Think of the persecution Christians have undergone throughout history where they would be killed if found with the Bible or merely even sections of it. A, a couple examples. In the year 303 AD, the Roman emperor Diocletian declared his edict against the Christians where he ordered the destruction of the Bible and any liturgical books to be burned. And if anyone refused to turn over their copies of Scripture, they were to be executed. Also, in the year 1414, the Parliament of England passed the Suppression of Heresy Act that stated, quote, that whoever should read the Scriptures in English should forfeit land, cattle, goods, and life, and be condemned as heretics to God, enemies to the crown, and traitors to the kingdom, that they should not have the benefit of any sanctuary, though this was the privilege then granted to the most notorious malefactors, and that if they continued obstinate or relapsed after pardon, they should first be hanged for treason against the king and then burned for heresy against God, end quote. For reading the English Bible, that would happen to you. John Wycliffe had translated the Latin Vulgate into English, so that the people could read the word of God and the Roman Catholic Church's response to this because of criticism from lay people who could then read the Bible was to criminalize the reading of the English Bible and to hang anyone who was caught reading it and then to burn them after hanging their body. The Christians of the past knew that being able to read and understand the scriptures was worth dying for. Yet, most of us let our Bibles sit on the shelf and collect dust. Beloved, if this is described in whole or in part, your attitude towards the word of God, let us repent and resolve to come to the word of God daily, diligently, praying that God would teach us and sanctify us through it. Let us not neglect this great blessing that we have. The word of God in our own language, neatly bound in nice pretty books, that's a blessing. As, moreover, looking back to the text, we see that Paul identifies himself to the Colossians as the author of this letter, as we've already stated. But notice also he is sure to give his credentials. As he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul presents himself here in no certain terms, in no uncertain terms, to be the representative of the crucified Savior who sits enthroned in heaven. And we cannot miss the weightiness of such a claim. For to be an apostle of Christ meant one spoke with the authority of Christ. Paul is also keen to add, by the will of God. Paul had not been appointed an apostle by ambition or usurpation. So Paul did not become an apostle because he really wanted to be one, nor was it taken in an underhanded manner. It was also not by a vote or nomination of men, but by divine preparation of God. Listen to what Paul wrote about himself and his appointing to be an apostle in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul wrote, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul was set apart from conception in his mother's womb to be a representative of of God. Hence, while we read it was by the very will of God that he be appointed to this high office. Paul adds 
here also, and Timothy, our brother. Now, Timothy was a close friend and fellow laborer in the ministry. Timothy had accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey as recorded in Acts 16. And there are numerous references to Timothy in Paul's writings, and two of his letters are addressed specifically to him, First and Second Timothy. And Timothy, although he is not an apostle, nor the author, appears to have been with Paul during the writing of this letter and wanted to greet the church in Colossae. And in referring to Timothy as our beloved brother, it would seem that Paul, in a gentle way, is showing everyone that Timothy is not an apostle, but is a close brother in Christ and is with him. And upon first reading of this verse, one may think that this was written by Paul and Timothy, that there was some joint authorship here. However, as we consider the whole of the letter, it is clear from the numerous statements made of I, Paul, that it was in fact Paul who was writing this, and Timothy was simply with him and wished to greet the fellow believers in Colossae. And you will find as you read through the New Testament letters that this is fairly commonplace. But Paul continues his introduction here in verse 2. Let's look back at it. Verse 2 reads, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. The addressees are here identified as the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. Saints are those who have been called out of the world and unto God to glorify him. The word saint means one who is holy. So how can those in Colossae who are caught in all this mysticism, worshiping angels, and who were in a sense exchanging Christ for self-made religion, having their minds taken captive through vain philosophy and empty deception? How can they be called ones who are holy? Beloved, they can be called holy in the same way that we can be called holy. Namely, that is because of Christ, because of his perfect sinless life and his being crucified on the cross, we can be called holy. Because when we, when he was on, the cro- on that cross, something amazing happened for you and for me. And that something is what many refer to as the great transaction. And in this transaction, our sins are transferred to Jesus on the cross. And Jesus' righteousness is transferred to us. That is, if you believe in him. Think of it as a bank account transaction. Our accounts are in the deficit, but Christ is infinitely full. So then the sins on our account is transferred to Jesus's, and his righteousness is transferred to our account, paying the debt that we owed. Consider what is written in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So you see, we can be called holy because Jesus has given us a righteousness that is not our own, but is his. And he has taken our sins away so that we can be seen as saints, ones who are holy in Christ. That is why Paul here describes the saints as being in Christ. Furthermore, we see this letter was meant primarily for the church in Colossae, and that it was also secondarily meant for the church in Laodicea. We must not forget, however, that this is meant for us and the church today. For we have already established that these are the very words of God, and we know that all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So if this is Scripture, and all Scripture is profitable for training in righteousness and for correction, 
Let us not forget that although, yes, this is addressed to the church in Colossae, not the church in Kingsport, Tennessee, it is still in a very real sense addressed to us, and we ought to heed what is said here. And finally, Paul ends his salutation here with his standard greeting, grace and peace from God our Father. The grace Paul speaks of is that is the grace all believers have been freely given, the grace by which we have been saved. Think of what is said in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I hope that's tattooed on your brain. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This grace, of which we are saved by, gives us a peace. A peace that can be attained in no other way. For it is a peace between us and God. Think again of what is written in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were all once enemies of God, renegades who are at enmity with God. But being saved by his grace, we have been justified through faith in Christ, which gives us peace where there was once discord. And is it not fitting that Paul adds here, from God our Father? For it is God the Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ who has chosen us before the foundation of the world and in love has predestined us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. The grace and peace that Christians have can only be received through the one true God. Although the world offers grace and peace and everything else your hearts may desire, the world is spiritually bankrupt and cannot make good on any of its offers. Beloved, this is great cause for praise and worship. Upon reflecting on such glorious truths, we ought to be bursting at the seams with praise to our Heavenly Father, giving thanks to the one who has bought us with the price of his only begotten Son, transferring us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God. So let us praise God and do all that we do as heartily as unto the Lord. And let's continue looking here at our next verse. Verse 3 reads, we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. The apostle here shows forth his thankfulness to God for the Colossian church. Paul, by example, shows us that we are not merely to give thanks to God for the things that he has done for us, but also that we are to be giving thanks for the grace that he bestows upon others, even those whom we have no contact with. So we must ask ourselves, does our prayer life exhibit any thankfulness to God for the blessings that he confers upon others? Do we spend time in prayer not merely thanking God for the blessings he has given us, but what of the faith that we hear of in distant places, of people that we've never met? Do we thank God for that? You see, the Apostle Paul had never met this congregation, for it was a man named Epaphras who had preached the gospel to them and helped establish this church. And it was also Epaphras who had told Paul of this church and expressed concerns for them. We read of this in verses 7 and 8 and also in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. But even though Paul had never met this people, he, give, he gave thanks in prayer to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And not to get ahead of ourselves, but we see from the next verse that the things of which Paul was giving thanks to God for 
was for the faith that they had in Christ and also the love that they had for the saints. Now, pay attention. This is a very important point. This shows us and teaches us a very central truth. That is, that the faith the Colossians had in Jesus Christ did not originate with them, nor did their love for the saints originate within them. This faith that the Colossians had in Christ was not something that they mustered up within themselves. No, rather, it was God who had called them by his grace and gave them new birth from above and with it faith in the only begotten Son. And also, the faith that we have in Jesus, if you are born again from above, that faith was given to you and me. It was a gift from God, and we ought to thank God for that gift. It was not a work that we performed to be accepted before God, but rather it was something he has given us out of his mercy and grace. For we were all spiritually dead before being made alive in Christ, as we are told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And dead men can't have faith. This is why Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And this just confounds Nicodemus. And being perplexed, Nicodemus asks Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? But what is the divine response? Jesus answers him and says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And what Jesus is saying is, Yes, you have been physically born and are physically alive, but you're spiritually dead inside, and you must be born again if you are to enter into eternal life. Beloved, no one has ever been born again by an act of their own will. Just the same as you are not born physically by an act of your own will, and so it is the same spiritually. To be born from above is nothing other than from the sovereign act of God Almighty having mercy on you. And if you're still wondering if this is true, let's bring this home with a very real description and application here. Or let us consider a description that God gives of, of unbelievers in his word. Look at Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 in this very same book. It reads, when you were dead and your transgressions, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And now we know from the very beginning of this book, we know that Paul is speaking to Christians in Colossae. And their state before Christ is described as being dead in transgressions. They were dead in their sins before Christ. And so this description of them is no less fitting of anyone outside of Christ now. To be dead in sin means you can't do anything. Let me ask everyone here this morning, what can a dead man do? Absolutely nothing. Can a dead man call upon the name of the Lord for his salvation? Let's bring this home with a very real illustration. If we all, after service here, go down the street to the cemetery, and we all go up to the graves of dead men and women, and we plead with them with all the emotion and gumption we have, saying, Call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is your only hope for salvation. And we can go on and on pleading with them. But the fact remains, they're dead. They can't do anything. They can't even hear you. And beloved, so we also couldn't do anything until God the Holy Spirit effectually called us and gave us a heavenly birth. We so often want to see ourselves as if we sought Jesus. Something we did. But it's only until we are in Christ that we can say, as the old hymn goes, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew 
he moved my soul to seek him. Seeking me, it was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by you. That's him, 466, in the Red Trinity Hymnal. And knowing this, that our salvation is completely of the Lord from start to finish, how can our hearts not be bursting forth with praise and thankfulness for not only our salvation, but also of those whom we have never met, but have only heard of their faith? This is exactly what the apostle does, understanding fully this doctrine of divine election, that we were all rebels dead in sin, that it was God who sovereignly sought us and gave us new birth in Christ. He rejoices to hear of this miracle happening in Colossae. It was a wonderful thing. Paul brings thankfulness to God for the Colossians, knowing that God had called to his self these people. So also let us give praise to God when we hear of the miracle of regeneration happening in the hearts of sinners, whether they be close friends, family, or even someone we've never met but have only heard of. Let this doctrine of unconditional election be the wind in our sails that will propel us forward in praising and thanking the mighty God who justifies sinners in Christ. Let's move forward now to our next verse. Look with me at verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Now, when we read verses 4 and 5 here together, and remember, there is no verse divisions when this was originally written, so they would have been read together. But when we read verses 4 and 5 here together, there are three important things that should catch our eye. For they are taught throughout the Bible and almost always come together in this triad. That is faith, love, and hope. As Paul has shown us, the Christian's faith is in Christ, for he is the only proper object of faith for the believer. We are to trust in Jesus alone. And furthermore, we see love mentioned, specifically a love for the saints. A believer will naturally have a love for his or her fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because we have all been adopted by the same heavenly Father, being joined together in Christ. And lastly of the three, hope. Now, hope does not refer to wishful thinking or even a desire for something to happen that may or may not happen. But rather, Christian hope refers to something that is certain, but has not yet fully been seen or experienced. So we see here that the hope laid up for us in heaven is certain, not wishful thinking, because through faith in Jesus, we will enter the gates of heaven. I cannot help but to be reminded of what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where Peter wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Beloved, we have this hope because we have been born again. And so we can have the sure expectation of being with our Savior in heaven. I want to read a quote from William Hendrickson in his commentary on this. He wrote, quote, Christian mental and moral attitudes and activities, such as believing, hoping, and loving, always react upon each other. In general, the more there is of the one, the more there will be of the other. This holds, too, with respect to hope. It reacts mightily and beneficially on faith and love. Christian hope is not mere wishing. 
It is a fervent yearning, confident expectation, and patient waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. A full Christ-centered assurance that these promises will indeed be realized. It is a living and sanctifying force, end quote. Furthermore, we see in the second half of this verse that the gospel is truth. There will always be those in the world who scoff at the very idea of God incarnate dying on a cross and being raised from the dead for the sins of those who would believe in him. But we know for certain that this is the word of truth, not the truth of the relativists in our day who claim that you can have your truth and we'll have our truth, but we're all equally right. No. Rather, it is factually, completely true without question. And therefore, all other systems of belief that deny this show themselves to be explicitly false. Dear believer, you don't need to doubt the truth of the gospel. It is as real and truthful as I am standing here before you. God has promised us eternal life with him in heaven through Jesus. This has been promised to us by God who cannot lie. Consider Romans twenty-three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie. He's not like us. And I hope that this would encourage all of us here in the truthfulness of the gospel, that we can rest in it. We do not need to doubt this truth. Now look with me at our final verse for this morning. Verse 6 reads, Which has come to you just as in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Here Paul encourages the Colossians by telling them this word of truth, the gospel, as it has been preached to them in Colossae, so also it has been preached and taken throughout the world. And just as the gospel produced the fruit of eternal life in the Colossians, so also it was going throughout the world. Moreover, the apostolic period saw rapid and explosive growth in the church with the gospel germinating the world and bearing fruit. The whole book of Acts is really just a record of how the gospel was exploding and going forth to all peoples and bearing the fruit of eternal life. And it didn't stop with the apostles. In fact, if you read Robert H. Glover, um, his book writes in his history of church missions saying, quote, on the basis of all the data available, it has been estimated that by the close of the apostolic period, the total number of Christian disciples had reached half a million, end quote. The gospel today is still exploding in the world. If we look at other nations such as China or some of the Asian countries and even in Africa, the gospel is exploding in these places and it is bearing the fruit of eternal life in all those who believe the truth of the gospel. Think also of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Beloved, this is still true today. This has not changed. Although it may be some 2,000 words, 2,000 years later since these words were penned, the gospel is still the power unto salvation for all who would believe and place their trust in Christ. While the apostle here seeks to encourage the Colossians with this truth, it is also, in a sense, to have an admonishing effect on them. 
For the Colossian church had been taken up in these mystical pagan practices, which at the very core was an exchanging of the truth of the gospel for man-made religion. The gospel needs no addition and no subtraction, something the church in Colossae seems to have not realized. Paul was in a way saying, hey, don't you remember how when the gospel was first preached among you and how it bore the fruit from above in you when you understood the grace of God in the gospel? Do you guys remember that? As the Colossians would have heard these words read among them, they would have realized that they must forsake all these other practices. For there is no supplement to the gospel. There is no addition. There is no subtraction. As we conclude this morning, to summarize what has been said, the Apostle Paul has written to the Colossian church, identifying himself as a representative of Christ, thus showing that these words are the inspired words of God. So we go about our day, so let us go about our day today and devote time to the reading of his word, to the study of it. And not just today, but throughout the whole week. If any of us want to grow in the faith, you've got to have a steady IV drip of the Bible into your body. People often think that there is some trick to that there is some trick to becoming more sanctified in the Christian life, and if only they could figure out that one trick, they would be all set. Life would be on easy mode. Just going to coast from here on out. Got to figure out that trick. Well, I'm here to tell you, there is no easy mode in the Christian life. There is no trick to grow in the faith. To, to grow in the faith, but only the hard work of being diligent to make use of the means of grace that God has given us. If we want a closer walk with God, we need a vibrant prayer life. There needs to be a seriousness and an urgency in your mind to making sure you are at church on Sunday hearing the word of God preached and being present for the Lord's Supper. That's Sunday school, Sunday morning, and Sunday night. You need to be here for all of those. And also, we have already said, you've got to read your Bible. It is a crucial part to the Christian's life. And not in a way where you're just checking the box to say you read it, but to truly read it and study it so that you can understand it. I can't tell you how many times I myself open up my Bible, I read my Bible, and you know, I, I read the X amount of chapters I have set for that day. I get done, I close it, I pray, and I get up and I'm like, what did I even read? I don't even know what I read. I wasn't paying attention. I was just reading it just to read it, going through the motions. We can't do that. We can't do that. Consider what is said in Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. Furthermore, we ought to give thanks for the salvation of others, as Paul does, and building each other up in the faith. And finally, we need to hold fast to the truth of the gospel, remembering it is by that truth by which we have been saved. If you're born again, it was the truth of the gospel that bore that fruit in you. Remember that. And that there is no substitute, no subtraction, no addition needed. It is the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for these words that have been penned for us, Lord, that you have given to us, that you have revealed yourself to us in it. We pray that you would give us hearts that are diligent to make use of the means of grace that you have given us, that we would be avid Bible readers, that we would 
be active in our churches, Lord, that we would be present in our churches, and that we would come to you in prayer often and continuously. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us, Lord, here today as we hear your word, that you would convict us through it and show us where we're deficient in these things and give us a resolve to do better, Lord. We pray that you would be with us in the coming week, that you would keep us all healthy. We pray for those who are not healthy, that they would be well soon and that they would be back with us next Lord's Day. And we pray all.